right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. Uh, Galatians chapter 4. If you don't, don't worry. Those verses will be on the screen here shortly. Um, I just want you to see God's Word in front of you. I just want you to kind of be able to uh, look at it as we read through and as we know where we're headed and things like that. So Galatians 4. Um, again, if you're visiting with us, thank you. We are currently in our uh, series, uh, The Thrill of Hope. It's our Christmas series. And so last week we were in the book of uh, Luke chapter 1 and kind of uh, begin to look a little bit at kind of the kickstart of the Christmas story. As, as we see uh, a man named Zacharias and a, a lady named Elizabeth who we know to become John the, it's John the Baptist's uh, mother and father. And so uh, in the story last week as we looked at God's word, as we uh, opened up his word and just really started to just kind of dive into this story, this whole thought of thrill of hope. Uh, and the reality that there had been 400 years of silence. God hasn't spoken. And so these men and women are starting to become uh, a little bit uh, restless, per se, as they're trying to figure out what's going on, what's happening. God's been silent, nothing's going on. But God made these promises a long time ago, but nothing's been fulfilled, nothing's happened. And so there's a little bit of restlessness, maybe a a loss of faith or belief in this God that has promised these things. And then uh, out of nowhere, we see God step in at the right time. And begin to work and begin to move and begin to speak again. And, and so uh, we, we've just visited that story and looked at that story as, as God makes a promise. And God always fulfills his promise. God always comes through with what he promises, with what he says. And so that's last week. This week we're going to jump into Galatians 4 and we'll be there here in uh, just a few minutes. But just in our world today, in our culture, in, just in us, we've been conditioned to, to earn for as long as we can remember. It's been just put in us, poured into us that, that we've got to earn, that we've got to work hard, that we've got to do all of these things so that we can, uh, we can deserve to have something. So just a few examples, um, earning praise and affirmation from our parents. I've got two boys that are still like that. Hey, Dad, Dad, look. Hey, Dad, Dad, watch. Dad, check this out, which usually never ends well whenever they say, hey, watch this, Dad. But, but they're looking for and they're wanting affirmation. They're wanting uh, me to pay attention and to see what they're about to do. Um, another way is maybe earning grades from a teacher. We, we know we've been taught, and that's a good thing, students, children, kids, teenagers, good grades, good um, but we've been uh, just poured into us that we've got to earn and work and do and get these good grades and, and do those type of things. Or, or we've got to earn playing time. So we've got to work hard. We've got to practice. We've got to do all of these things to earn playing time from our coaches or, or, or earn attention from a, a boy or a girl or, or earn a paycheck. We've got to work hard and earn, earn, earn that paycheck from our employer. And so the reality is this, is we've probably learned and been conditioned on how to earn well before we could speak or walk. As a child, as a baby, those type of things have just been poured into us. But our need for earning, I believe, paralyzes us before before God's offer of true grace. I believe it cripples us as it pertains to God and His free gift of grace. And so we don't know how to receive favor without working for it. We don't know how to receive and have and, and walk in that reality of grace Unless we do something to earn it or to get it. And so what happens so often is we trade away the true gospel because we prefer to work and serve God as slaves and not as sons. And we would never say that with our mouth, but our lives reek of that reality. And it's because we just don't feel safe letting him do all the work. It just doesn't make sense. That's not the culture or the world that, that we live in that we're a part of, is it? Let God do it all. We just believe and walk in that faith and that belief. Because what happens is whenever we work, whenever we earn, it gives us some semblance of control. Look at what I've done, so I deserve now. 
Look at what I did or how I accomplished or I just tried harder and this is what, this is what I get and I deserve now. And that's just embedded within us. And so there's a struggle that, that's deep within the church, deep within us, deep within this world. And that's that struggle of believing that God would just want us. That God would just desire us or that God would adopt us in as his own child. It's just a struggle within us, within the church. And so I'm going to ask you if you'd join me as we pray, and then we'll jump in and we'll see what the Apostle Paul has to say for us uh, this morning. Father, we, we need you, God. I pray that your Holy Spirit falls heavy upon this place. Father, that, that you would invade this place with your presence, your spirit. God, that you would move in a mighty way, that you would draw lost man, lost woman to you. God, that you would rescue and redeem. God, uh, how amazing would it be this morning as we talk about adoption. God, if you, would, if you would pick one this morning to adopt and to make yours. Oh, God, I beg of you to move in a mighty way. Save the lost. And Father, as we look at your word, God, I pray that you just prick our heart ever so slightly. And God, convict us and draw us, God, and that you would point out sin in our life, Lord, shortcomings in our life. And God, that you would bring about conviction. God, conviction is a good gift of yours. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that. God, I pray that you would encourage the heart that needs it. God, that you would just speak so much louder than a guy standing on a stage with a microphone. Oh, Father, but that your presence would be felt in this place and lives would be radically changed forever for the gospel. Jesus, we need you. In name we pray. Amen. Galatians 4, we're going to jump in. But here, here in Galatians, what Paul's going to do is he's just going to give us a kind of a different version of the Christmas story, maybe a different way of looking at it and seeing it. And it's this idea, this idea of adoption is just embedded right within this story. And I believe it's just a beautiful story as we talk about a baby being born. And we get a look at adoption a little bit this morning and what that means for us as men and women uh, of God. And so these scriptures, you've got to understand, these scriptures were written uh, about 20 years after Jesus was crucified. So 20 years after Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and has risen again, 20 years after that. And so that would put it about 55 uh, years after his birth. 55 years after his birth. Why would I say that? Because Paul is writing to a group of people that would be familiar with Jesus. That would have heard about Jesus. That, that would have known some of the stories, would have known how he lived, would have known some of the, the miracles firsthand. Would have been aware of it. I mean, this is not far removed from the reality of the cross, his death, and his resurrection. And so uh, Paul begins to uh, unpack and let us know and shares with us some, some pretty weighty and hefty truths. And so let's jump in. Galatians 4, verse, verse 4, starting with, he says, but this, he says, but when the fullness of time had come. And so we've got to understand what Paul's saying here. He's just simply saying that God's, this is God's timetable. It, when, when the exact religious, cultural, and political conditions demanded by his perfect plan, they were in place. Then what happens? Jesus comes into the world. In the fullness of the time, when God saw fit, when God said, enough's enough, now's the time, when God felt prompted and moved upon that. See, God had planned this from the very beginning. This isn't a this isn't something he's like, what, what can we do? What do we need to do? No, he, he had planned this. This wasn't a last-minute Hail Mary. He knew that this day would come when he would send forth his son. And so we've got to be very careful not to think of the Christmas story as just some far-off thing, right? It's a story that we just visit once a year. It's a story that we look at, God help us. If we can make it past Thanksgiving, then we begin to hear the music, we begin to think about everything taking place and happening. But, but it's a story we hear once a year, so it's very, very easy to be disconnected from the story, to be removed from the story. 
And, and, and even in our culture and our world to think it's this far off thing or like an old wives tale or a story that's just been passed down over time. I guess it's so easy just to disconnect from the men and women of scripture. To disconnect from those who lived this and walked this. Who was there and present in that very day. It's so easy to just disconnect and read it as a story. To close our Bible and to walk out and quickly forget the reality of what we've just read. Because see, Paul is pinning this letter to a group of people just like you and I. Real men and women with real needs, with real hurts, with real hang-ups, with real issues. So I beg of you, don't disconnect from the story. Press in all the more. See how you fit. See where your place is. So Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God does something. God initiates. And I just, I love that reality about our God. Our God is a God that initiates. And this is what he does. He, God sent forth his son. Who's his son? Jesus. God sends forth Jesus. And then he makes this little clause to describe how Jesus comes. Born of a woman. So who is that woman? That woman's Mary. That, that woman's Mary minding her own business, doing her own thing. Promised to be married to a man, Joseph. Just living her life. And God invades And so I believe we need to press in for a moment and we need to chat because there is something really weighty and heavy and something that needs to be understood, something that needs to be loved and believed very, very hard here in the scripture. So God initiates and sends forth Jesus, what, born of a woman. And so we need to talk about this woman for a moment. Now hear me, we don't worship the woman. We worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. We worship Jesus is who we worship. But there is something about this woman that we need to cling to and that we need to believe wholeheartedly and that we need to to walk in because this is something so radical that makes no sense to the smartest minds. And the thing that we need to hold to and believe is the virgin birth. Is the virgin birth. And see, this is a huge doctrinal and theological hill to die on. This is something that we base our faith around and upon. And so the virgin birth is not just some, okay, silly little fable or wives' tale or, well, I heard. No, no, no. No, it's written from the Word of God. It's in the Word of God. And so God speaks of it and he tells us and he lets us know. And so it's a very big deal, the virgin birth. It sets us apart from every other religion. So Jesus is born of a virgin. And so this is a glory unique to the God-man, to Jesus. It's unique of of the billions of humans, of the billions of people who have lived throughout all of history. Only one person enters the world this way. Only one. And so it's Jesus' distinctive birth. It's him. This is no myth. It's not made up. It's not just a random fact from the Gospels. It's a very important truth that we need to grasp and, and hold to dearly. It's full of significance for for knowing the person of Jesus and the God who has revealed himself in him. It's very, very important. The the great theologian N.T. Wright pens this. He says, first century folks knew every bit as well as, as we do how babies are produced. When in Matthew's version of the story, Joseph heard about Mary's pregnancy, his problem arose not because he didn't know the facts of life, but because he was well aware of the facts of life. And for her to say what she has said, for it to happen the way that she said it happened, is an impossible medical mystery. There there is no way possible that that could happen, that, that, that a virgin birth could take place, unless the God of the universe is a part of it. 
unless the creator of all, the God in total control of everything at all times, has a hand to do with it. And that is very well what takes place. What's impossible with man is very possible with God. Very possible. And so, so you asked this morning, what, what's the significance? Why are we talking about the virgin birth? It just said born of a woman. Why are you diving into this? And so I'm happy you asked because I want to look at the significance for a moment of the virgin birth. Why would God do things this way? Why would he choose to send his son this way and, and have it happen this way? And I believe it's only a God thing. I mean, I mean, how can you deny the grandeur and the glory of our God when he goes above and beyond himself? So why did God do it this way? First thing, I, the first reason why I believe is because it points to, to the supernatural. It points to his godness. See, on the, on the one end of Jesus' life, you've got the supernatural conception and his birth. And on the other, you've got his supernatural resurrection and his ascension to, to God's right hand. I mean, is this not our God? He's not just something that you can just uh, uh, explain away or, or just uh, uh, give reasons for. But our God, when he goes out, he goes all out, does he not? And he sends heaven's best in a way that cannot just be explained, reasoned off. I guess I kind of think of it like this. Like I can remember as a kid, there were distinct packages that belonged to me and distinct packages that belonged to my sister. And I can just remember as a kid the fancy wrapping and the bows and stuff like that. That was from mama. And then the messy ones were from somebody else. I can just remember how those packages, man, I just, I could not wait to tear into them. And so I guess as I look at this story, as I think of, of God giving us the greatest gift that we could ever have, why would he not? Why, why would he not roll out the red carpet? Why would he not go all out for us? Why would he not do something that would just blow us away completely? The greatest gift ever given comes by way of virgin birth. So it's supernatural. It's only a God thing. The second reason why I believe that he chooses to do this is because the virgin birth, what it does is it shows us that humanity needs a saving that, that we cannot bring about for ourselves. That humanity, fallen man, needs a savior whereby we can't produce, whereby we can't muster up, whereby we can't create. And so the fact of the human race, we couldn't produce our own redeemer, just implies our, our sin and our guilt, and, and it just damns us all the more to eternity separated from God. And so what needs to happen? A Savior must come outside of humanity. And so that's what we see take place in the virgin birth. Jesus was placed there by God, not man. Seed of God, not the seed of man, fallen, sinful man. The third reason why I believe God does this is because it's just, I mean, it's God's initiative put on display. That's what I love about our God. He's not secretive. He's not deceptive. He's not manipulative. He doesn't try to hide things. I mean, I, I don't know where you're at with the scriptures, but there's some crazy messed up stories in there. You think your family's got issues. I can introduce you to many, many people in the scriptures that makes your family look like poster children. It's supposed to kind of be a joke, all right. Reel it back in. We'll delete that one off. Uh, but no, rea the reality is that. I, I mean, how messed up this world is. And so it's God's initiative put on display. It's God showing us his, his purpose. God showing us his plan. See, the angels, they didn't ask Mary about her willingness. No, no they just announced it to her in Luke one thirty one. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So God doesn't ask Mary's permission. 
He doesn't ask her permission. No, he, he acts. He acts gently but very decisively to save his people from their sin. And for whatever reason, he puts his baby boy in this girl in a way that can only be explained by faith and by the works of God. And then the third reason why I believe God, God does this is because the virgin birth hints at the fully human and fully divine natures united in Jesus. Jesus is like no one we've ever known, no one we've ever read about, no one we've ever experienced, no one we've ever met. And the thing about Jesus that just frustrates the, the smartest and greatest of minds is simply this, is that Jesus was completely God and Jesus was completely man. In church, in our world, that doesn't add up because we're a 100% world and Jesus comes into this world with 200%. Fully man, fully God, and I'm here to tell you I don't have a clue how that works. But all I know is that the scriptures talk about it. We see his godness play out. We see his humanness play out. The, the man part of Jesus play out. And so the virgin birth hints at that. It shows us that fully human, fully God, united in Jesus, being one. And only our God could do that. So what happens is God chooses to mark the coming of his eternal son, his anointed one with an extraordinary birth. So is it important that we believe the virgin birth? That we fight for the virgin birth? That we cling to the virgin birth? Yes, it's a resounding yes. We've, we've got to believe it. It didn't have to happen this way, but God, for whatever reason, saw fit for it to happen in a way that would only bring him the utmost glory, only bring him the utmost honor. And so God ordained it. He appointed it in this particular way. And what does he do? He chooses to use Matthew and Luke to record it clearly in the Gospels to show us. And so hear me, there's a great danger in this virgin birth if we don't believe it, if we don't cling to it. Because what happens is if we deny this doctrine, we open up the door to denying any, anything plainly affirmed in the Scriptures. Anything. If, if we don't believe what God's Word has said, if we don't cling to it, and hear me, church, we believe that God's Word is inerrant without error. It's perfect. It's infallible. There's, there's no issues, no mess-ups. It's God's Word. It's God-breathed. God speaks to us through His Word. So hear me. You haven't heard from God lately. My question would be, have you been in His Word? Because you're not going to hear from him if you're not in his word. Because that's how he speaks. There's no special revelation. The revelation is through God and his word. If we want to know God, we want to know what he said. We want to know what he's about. We want to know what to do. Right here's how we do it. You want to grow closer to Jesus? You grow closer in his word and you hear what he said. And with his word, we believe that it's inspired the very nature and essence and character of who our God is contained in these 66 books. It's inspired. It is God-breathed. It's not man that wrote this. God uses man, presses upon their heart, uses them to pen the very words from our God. Think about that for a moment, church. I mean, get your head and heart around that for a second. Uh, the goofy little illustration that I always give here, and I'm sorry, boo, that I said goofy about this because it's really, really awesome. But it was me in college, and I can remember being three hours away from my girl. Like, things are serious. And at that day, you probably guys aren't super familiar, but there's a thing called writing letters. And so she would pin me a letter. And I can remember going to the post office, and it was one of those things you had to have this, like, weird little funky uh, combination. And I would get in, I would be so disappointed if there was nothing there. So I trod back to my dorm, come back the next day, and then there's a letter. There it is. It's from Meredith. And so I'll rip it open and I'll read it real quick and I'll look at what it says. Like, ah, I'll put it in my pocket and I'll run back to my dorm and I'll, I'll lay on my bed and I'll have my feet up kind of kicking and I'll start to read it. When you're in love, you do crazy things, right? 
so I'm reading it, and as I'm reading it, I'm trying to figure out, what did she mean there? I knew she liked me like that. Yes! And I would just read it, and I would dissect it, and I would tear it up, because we didn't do text back then, because that would cost you an arm and a leg. So, so we would write letters, and it was really cool, and then we would talk at night. And so I can remember jumping on the phone, like, hey, babe, what you mean right here? Like, I'm your, I'm your like, stud muffin. Like, what's that mean? Yeah, but tell me again. Scott, it's on the paper. I know, but just explain. I don't know the definition of stud muffin. She never wrote that in a letter. That's just wishful thinking. Christmas card this year. Um, but, but I would do that. I would jump in. I would try to dissect it and understand and know it all the more. Why? Because it was important. I wanted to know the heart of the one writing the letter. Church, that needs to be us. That needs to be us with God's word. We need to be diving in. We need to be, what does that word mean? My, what does God mean there? What's he saying about me? What's he saying about this world? What's he saying about himself? And think about it for a moment. As I talked about the one that wrote the letter to me, imagine the one talking about it being inspired and God breathed. Church, the creator of the universe writes us a letter, speaks a letter in the heart of men, and they pen it. And it's not man's idea or man's thoughts, but it's ordained by God, and it's perfect for his creation and his people. And if that doesn't get us fired up, then we need to be starting over. We need to be looking at that and checking our heart to make sure we belong to the one that has given us this letter of his heart. So Jesus, it talks more about him. It says, says there as we continue on in this verse, it says, born under the law. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born under the law. Just a mosaic law. Think Ten Commandments. Think all the commandments, all 613 commands that God had given the people. And so what, what Paul is saying is simply this. is He's reminding, as he's pointing to who Jesus is, he reminds the people there in Galatia who he is. Born under the law. Jesus was like all men. He was obligated to obey the law. And Jesus did it to perfection. Not one of us in this room has, but Jesus has done it to perfection. And then he goes on and he says this, he says, to redeem. To redeem is this, this meaning to buy back, to purchase. To purchase those who were under the law. That's us, church. That's lost mankind. That's us. We have broken the law. We have, we have missed God's standard. We have failed miserably. We are wicked, fallen, depraved people in need of a rescuer and a redeemer. That's who we are. And we have a Savior who's come to redeem, to buy us back, to purchase us back. See, the problem is this, is that it's not our acts that mess us up, it's our heart. It's who we are. It's us being born sinful, wicked, fallen, and an enemy of God. And so in the scriptures, when you see this word sin, and as I talk about it here in a moment, what I mean by that is this, is it's an archery term. Any hunters in the room? It's an archery term. And so when we see sin, when we think of sin, we think of ourselves in the light of sin in comparison to who God is, you've got to think archery for a moment. And so it's a, it's a bow and arrow term. And so it's as a guy that would pull out his, his arrow and he would load it into his bow. And as he would pull back and the target is before him, this thought of sin is, is missing the mark. But it's not even the thought of, okay, like we, we just kind of barely skirt the edge. That's how we like to 
to think or put ourselves in. Because again, we think far too highly of ourselves than we should. That's not what Scripture's painting, the picture of. The picture of sin and us as fallen mankind. It's us pulling out our arrow, and there is the target in front of us. But instead of aiming at the target, we aim for whatever we want to, and we let it fire, and we chase after, and we go after whatever it is that our heart longs for, wants, and desires. And so we are a wicked people that needs to be purchased back, that needs to be redeemed. We failed miserably. And it's not our, it's not our outside influences. It's none of that type of stuff. It's just deep with, deep-seated and rooted within us because we are fallen, sinful mankind. So as I think about the laws, I think about Jesus coming for those who are under the law. I, I think about this. Like I, I can remember a few years ago going in on Thanksgiving and go in on, on Thanksgiving, we're driving as we're going part, through this part of North Carolina it's like a town and there's like uh, restaurants on both sides of the interstate and, and shopping and stuff like that and there's this bridge and as we're going, like, like, like I want to get there, you know, like I'm not a let's don't, let's, we'll stop when we get there type guy and let's go as, with the traffic, right because I'm a good law abiding citizen everybody else is doing it, right, I mean is that not the, anyways, that's wrong, that's false there's a speed limit for a reason and there's a law there for a reason and let, let me share with you what happens when you break that law because as we're going and we're there, there's this bridge. Because we're going to get to the other side of the interstate where some of the restaurants are. You've got to go across the bridge of the exit. And so, uh, but we're not getting off there. We're just going. This is before kids, so we didn't have to stop 15 times to use the bathroom and to get snacks and all that stuff. So, so as we're going, there's an officer, cute little officer, standing up there on the bridge with a gun. Not gun, but like a radar gun. And this joker is standing on the bridge, and he is shooting people with that radar gun. What a jerk, Right? Not a church-friendly word. Strike that. Not a very nice guy, right? Sorry, kids. I forgot who's in here. Not a very nice guy. Why would he do that? Because he's made an oath to help us abide by the law. And so as he's shooting people going by, I'm thinking, okay, this is easy. He can't. There's no way he can get in his car and catch us. Until I get past the exit and I realize there's some other Nah, nice guys over there sitting in their cars and he would walkie-talkie to them and they would get you. I mean, how fair is that? I mean, that's not cool. And so I get a little amped up about that and thank the Lord for whatever reason. When you see breaks, like you do breaks too. And so thank the Lord God's sovereignty protected me from that moment. Hear me, church. Your sin will be found out. So just, I know that. But he protects me in that moment. And this is me telling the story, right? So I get to kind of, that's false. Anyway, so God, God doesn't allow me to get caught in that moment. But he catches me in a different way. Because deep within me in that moment, I'm like, oh, crud. But I didn't get caught, but other people got caught. And so this thought as I was reading this, as I was looking at this this week, and as I was thinking and reflecting back on that, why was that officer there? Why? He's there to enforce the law, right? But he wants the interstate to be safe. He wants to protect. He wants to guard. He wants us to arrive and to get to our destination on time and safely and good. And so he's there to protect. And so what happens when we get caught? You owe a debt, right? Because there's a ticket. There's a fine that comes with that. And so what happens is you owe a debt to the one who, who uh, makes us follow and abide by the law. That's what takes place. And so church, hear me this morning because the same thing is true in our position as the created of God. When we break the law, and we've all broken the law, we've been caught in our sin. We owe, Romans 6.23 says it like this. It says, for the wages of sin is death. 
Death, that's defined due. That's what we owe is death. And there's physical death because we're going to physically die. We see it every day. We have loved ones that cross over and enter into eternity. We know that. But then there's also spiritual death. Something as a result of our sin dies in us as it pertains to God. And there's separation from God. And so that's what the law is there to do. It's to tell us that no one's good. None of us. None of us. And scripture even teaches that if there's any command not kept, any command broken, that we, we are guilty of breaking all. Therefore, we deserve this death. And so the law is not given for us to be saved by, but it's to show us that we can't be saved on our own. It's to show us and to prove to us that we, we can never be good enough. We can never not uh, go over the speed limit. That we can never not take something that's ours. We can never not tell a lie. That, that we'll, we'll blow it every time. And so the law is there to show us that we need to be saved and rescued. And Jesus comes and he purchases those. He redeems those who are under the law. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this verse again. Because I believe one of the first promises from today's scripture is found here in this verse. And the first promise is this. Is when God redeems, he secures us forever. When God redeems us, saves us, rescues us, he secures us forever. He never forgets or forsakes his own children. Listen again as we read it. To redeem those who are under the law. The cost is too great. We can never pay. And so Jesus takes the tap for us. He goes to the cross for us. He redeems us. He buys us back to God. He makes us right. We're declared righteous. The bill has been paid. And the great news is this. There's no late fees or extra add-ons at the end of the month. It's satisfied completely. So to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoptions as what? Sons. Church, the greatest news you'll ever hear for Christmas is that you can be adopted finally by the God of the universe. And so what this scripture teaches and tells us is that God gives us more than a, you're okay, you're fine, you'll make it to heaven. God says, I want you as my son or I want you as my daughter. That's what he says. And I don't know if you're aware, but there's this great need deep planted within us for relationship. And we can have all the relationship this way that we want, but it will never satisfy. It will never fulfill what we need. The relationship that we need is with Jesus. The greatest relationship everyone in this room needs is Jesus. And so he says, I want you as my son or daughter. And so I don't know if you're aware of how the adoption system works in our world, but um, it's not like going to the pet store and you get to pick out a dog. Oh, yeah, I want that one. I want that. No, no, no. Like, and they don't line up kids, and you're like, okay, that one, that one. And you know the crazy thing about it is when you adopt, you, you, you can't see how the, how the future is going to be. You don't know how it's going to end up for you. But whatever kid that if you want to adopt or take in and make your own as your family, you, you don't know how the end plays out. You don't know if it's going to end badly for you as a family or for that kid or, or if it's going to end great as a family. or for, you, don't, you don't have a clue how it's going to play out. And so you step out on faith and you adopt and you bring in and you make them your own and you love and you walk with and you care for and do all of those type of things, praying to God that he'll get a hold of their heart and he'll shape them and form them into the image of his son. But as I read this and as I thought about this and I just felt like God kind of just hit me with it this morning, you know what the crazy thing about adoption with God is? Is it's completely opposite for him. He is well aware of what we're going to be and what we're going to turn into and the times even when he adopts us and he makes us his, he is well aware of even in those moments when we're going to rebel and we're not going to listen and we're not going to follow and we're going to act however we want to act and we're going to curse his name and we're going to do whatever we want to do and live however we want to live and be whatever we want to be and we're going to just rebel like crazy against daddy. 
He is well aware, and he knows how bad some of that will be, how some of you in this room will turn your back and you will walk away or you've walked away from God for years and wanted nothing to do with him and shook your fist at him. And he'll know those in this room who are so scared and they they try to follow the law to their detriment even. And he's saying, you're forgiven, you're in me, just be. He knows your most righteous sin, which is is a fallacy, not true, and it's not a real thing. And he knows your your most vilest of sin, because at the end of the day, sin is sin. And he is aware of the total picture. And what blows my mind, what blows my mind about this reality is, he knows and he is aware, and he knows that Scott's going to struggle with faith, and that Scott's going to say this, or Scott's going to act like that, or Scott's going to see this thing of the world and run after it. He knows Scott to the end, and he still says, I want you as my boy. Oh, God, thank you. He knows and he is aware of how much we're going to blow it. And he says, I want you as my son and my daughter. That's what this time of the year is about. The thrill of hope. We were hopeless, church. We were needed, needing adoption. And he knew what he was getting when he purchased us and he still does. He still adopts us. He still says, I want you. And I know that you're not going to listen and I know that you're going to act this way. I know your makeup and I know what's in you. He says, but I still want you. I still want you. Which brings us to our second promise in verse 6. Our second promise is this, is that we can have intimacy, a deep, personal, satisfying relationship with the Heavenly Father who knows us thoroughly, who loves us continually and promises to protect and provide for us. We can know that and we can have that intimacy with Him. Look at verse 6. It says this. It says, and because you are sons... You're saved, you're a believer, because you are a son or a daughter. You've been adopted in. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart. So hear me, church. As a believer, you get the Holy Spirit. As a believer, you, the Holy Spirit indwells us. We are a possessed people. He lives within us. That's what this says. Because you belong to Jesus, because you're a son or a daughter, he sent forth his spirit into your hearts. Look at what it does. Crying out what? Abba, Father. So the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God's Son, has inhabited our hearts, making us relationally connected to God to the point where we can say, Daddy, Daddy, we can cry out to our Heavenly Father, Dad, Dad, there's nothing in my life that thrills me more when my boys say, Dad, Dad, I want you, Dad, come here, Dad. There's nothing in my heart that thrills me anymore. And what Paul teaches here by Jesus coming, dying, and being for us. He he adopts us through faith in him. We come to him through faith. Whereby he lives in us. Whereby we can say dad. You don't just say dad to everybody, do you? It doesn't work that way. We're not relationally wired like that with everybody. But what we have with our heavenly father is dad. And we see this played out in Jesus' life in the garden. As he's about to be arrested, beaten, and crucified. What does he cry out? He cries out, Father, let this cup pass from me. In that vulnerable moment, he uses the word Abba. He uses the word Daddy. The most intimate, deepest moment, difficult struggle of Jesus' life. And he cries out for his dad. Cries out for his daddy. So we relate to God not just as forgiver or judge, but as father. But as father. We need a heavenly father. And this is how Paul is recalling the Christmas story. 
This is how Paul sees it, as a son of God who has been chosen by God, who has been adopted by God, not as as, as dirty sinner, not as a, a okay kind of guy, not as he's done a lot of stuff, but, but as a son of the risen king. That's what Christmas is about. Which brings us to our third promise in verse 7. And he's going to tell us this, that we become heirs of all things. All things. You and I, as a son or a daughter of God, become an heir of all things. He says, therefore, as a result of everything that Paul has just said and mentioned and told the believers there at Galatia, which rings true for us today here, God's about to make a promise that, that you just don't want to miss. He says this, therefore, you are no longer slaves but a son. What does a slave do? They have to obey the law. They have to obey the rules. They do the do's and the don'ts. And so what Paul is teaching is that Christmas is about moving past the slave mentality and seeing God differently. Moving into the reality of who God is. And there's this implanted in every one of us as believers a sense of freedom. Church, we've got freedom. God's standards, they don't enslave us, but they set us free to pursue the fullness of joy that's only found in that of Christ. Only found in that of Christ. Hear me, God is not a kill joy. God is not a kill joy. His standard of holiness is there for a reason to point us to him as, as well as to show us how things were created to be before the fall. He doesn't tell you not to do something because he wants to ruin the fun. No, he tells you not to do something. Why? Because he loves you and he cares for you. As a good father, you need to tell your kids no sometimes. I mean, how horrific is that if you tell your kids yes every single time? I mean, that's awful, is it not? That's not love, that's hate. You're setting them up for something that can never be attained. You're making this world about them and it's not. It's not. God hasn't set forth these expectations and standards for us to ruin our life, but to make our life full, full of joy, fullness in Him. He goes on and says this, he says, And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So an heir, it means this, that we have access to all that God has. Everything. What's your greatest need this morning? You've got access to the one that can fulfill, the one that can move, the one that can do anything about whatever issue or struggle or hang-up that you have. We get to inherit all of that, everything. But the greatest news of all, we'll inherit Him. So Christmas is about moving past the lie that you're a slave and you're bound to rules and moving either into a relationship or a deeper relationship with the Father. That's what Christmas is about. And so hear me, church, as we wind down, we no longer relate to God. As believers, we no longer relate to God as the lawgiver, but as the Father. We no longer look at God through the lenses of what we've done, but instead we look at God through the lenses of what, what, who we are and what He's done in His Son. And that we get to become sons and daughters. So as the band comes back up, I love that because Eric and I, we didn't, we didn't talk about this this week, of, of where it would be. And there's this, this illustration of a song that we just sang. The French poet who penned the words of, of the song that we just sung a few minutes ago, Oh Holy Night. I believe he nails it. I believe he gets it so right. See, the first line that he wrote, Long lay the world, what, in sin and error pining, till he appeared. And then we've sung this next verse, this next line a thousand of times, but, but maybe the significance of it will, will, will just dawn on you for the first time today. He says this, and the soul felt its worth. Have you ever thought of it like that? Because of Jesus, 
the value that God has in you, the, 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 the relationship that he wants, and the soul felt its worth. God, our Father has adopted us, has made a way for us to call him Daddy. And there is value and worth to us, and it's only found in Jesus. And we can feel that worth because of Christ. He shows up and he says that we are of great value. What kind of value? Value enough to lay down his life for us. So as I was thinking about this morning and I was thinking about the reality of what Paul talks about in this thought of adoption, I'm reminded of just a crazy story. Tom, you were were there. We went on this mission trip. I can't remember. Um, I was still at the church before here. And we go to Guatemala. And one of the big things that we're going to be doing there in Guatemala, this mission agency, this, this, this community there that's, that's based on just loving and showing that community Jesus, one of the big things that they would do is that they would go up into the mountains of Guatemala and they would rescue kids that were just on the brink of death because of malnourishment or because of, of, of parents not being able to sustain and keep them up. I mean, it was horrific. I mean, kids' legs were like, were like, like this. Like I can remember sitting. Do you remember the babies? We saw babies in there. Their, their legs are this big around like a newborn, and they're like, they're like 10 years old, and their stomachs are, are bloated because of starvation setting in, and they've got the huge, and their little heads are just, they look like skeletons. And I can remember that there was a baby that was rescued, and there was this family that just came on a mission trip and just fell in love with this little baby. Oh, man, they, they fell in love with this little guy to the point of where they said, we want him as ours. And so they would go back year after year, and they would love on this little guy in this orphanage, and he was doing good. And they finally said, we're taking the plunge. We want him. So they signed the papers, and they're doing all that, and they're paying all this money. And halfway through the process, Guatemala closes the adoption for the whole country. No kids in, no kids out. Close it. And I can remember we were there on that trip, and as we're there on that trip, we're hearing this story, and I'm just wrecked over it. I'm like, that's awful. What are you going to do now? And I can remember them saying, we're going to sell everything we have, and we're going to go to him. If he can't come to us, my George, we are going to him, and we're going to sell everything we have in America, and we're going to move there. And as I thought of this story, and as I thought of this picture of adoption, I thought of Jesus doing that for us. Selling everything that he's got. God gives up everything and he sends his son to die for us. To go to that cross. Why? So we can be with him for eternity. Church, that's what Christmas is about. That's what Paul is trying to draw the attention to because something in that story just resonates with us. And we cheer for stories like that. And we think, that's crazy. Why? Because that's exactly what's happened to us. That's exactly what took place with us. Jesus gives up everything. So maybe this year when you think about Christmas, it won't be about the gifts or the lights or the tree or the plastic decorations for the outside. All that stuff that does nothing for us. Maybe it'll be this deep longing inside of you for a relationship with the Father. We all have daddy issues. And there's only one daddy that can solve that, that can fix that. And his name is Jesus. We are the kids that need to be adopted. 
we are the ones that need to be rescued. And for Paul, when he thinks of the Christmas story, he thinks about being made a son of the heir of all, and that is Jesus Christ. And so I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what God's stirring in your heart or your soul. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, and the greatest gift that you can receive is that of Jesus Christ in faith. If you're not his, I would beg if you don't leave this place not knowing Jesus. If you're his, you celebrate and you remember as we sing all that Christ has done. And maybe for whatever reason this morning, God says, I want you and you believe and you come to him in faith. If that's you, I'm going to be here. This altar is open. If you need to pray, if you need to talk with someone, we'll be here. And we would love nothing more than to talk more about Jesus and what this time of year really means. But would you join me as we pray? Father, we need you. God, thank you for adopting me. We think of adoption as those kids that are unwanted, unloved, something wrong with them. And God, the reality is that is a perfect picture of every man and woman, boy and girl, sitting in this room this morning. That is exactly right. But what you do is in the midst of that, you step in and you make a way where there seems to be no way. You bring hope. So, Father, I just want to pray for the, the sons and daughters in this room. And I pray you encourage and you lift up and your spirit cries out all the more in them, Abba, Father. And God, for those in this room that don't know you, God, I pray this morning is the morning that you adopt, that you bring in, that you make a son or a daughter of yours. So, Father, move in this moment. It's for your glory and for your honor. In your name we pray. Amen. If you guys would stand, the band's going to lead us this morning.